John Smith USA by Eugene Field author of The Clink of the Ice and Winkaway Land Hoosier Lyrics, etc. 1905. Introduction. From whatever point of view the character of Eugene Field is seen, genius, rare and quaint presents itself as childlike simplicity. That he was a poet of keen perception, of rare discrimination, all will admit. He was a humorist as delicate and fanciful as Artemis Ward, Mark Twain, Bill Nye, James Wickham Riley, Opie Red, or Bret Hart in their happiest moods. Within him ran a poetic vein, capable of being worked in any direction, and from which he could, at will, extract that which his imagination saw and felt most. That he occasionally left the child world, in which he longed to linger, to wander among the older children of men, where intuitively the hungry listener follows him into his temple of mirth, all should rejoice, for those who knew him not, can while away the moments imbibing the genius of his imagination in the poetry and prose here presented. Though never possessing an intimate acquaintanceship with Field, owing largely to the disparity in our ages, still there existed a bond of friendliness that renders my good opinion of him in a measure trustworthy. Born in the same city, both students in the same college, engaged at various times in newspaper work both in S.T. Lewis and Chicago, residents of the same ward, with many mutual friends, it is not surprising that I am able to say of him that the world is better off that he lived, not in gold and silver or precious jewels, but in the bestowal of priceless truths, of which the possessor of this book becomes a benefactor of no mean share of his estate. Every lover of field, whether of the songs of childhood or the poems that lend mirth to the outpouring of his poetic nature, will welcome this unique collection of his choicest wit and humor. Charles Walter Brown Chicago, January, 1905 John Smith Today I strayed in Charing Cross as wretched as could be with thinking of my home and friends across the tumbling sea. There was no water in my eyes, but my spirits were depressed, and my heart lay like a sodden, soggy doughnut in my breast. This way and that streamed multitudes, that gaily passed me by, not one in all the crowd knew me and not a one knew I. Oh, for a touch of home! I sighed. Oh, for a friendly face! Oh, for a hearty handclasp in this teeming desert place! And so, soliloquizing as a homesick creature will, incontinent, I wandered down the noisy, bustling hill and drifted, automatic-like and vaguely, into Lowe's, where fortune had in store a panacea for my woes. The register was open, and there dawned upon my sight a name that filled and thrilled me with a cyclone of delight, the name that I shall venerate unto my dying day, the proud, immortal signature. John Smith, USA. Wildly I clutched the register and brooded on that name. I knew John Smith, yet could not well identify the same. I knew him north, I knew him south, I knew him east and west. I knew him all so well I knew not which I knew the best. His eyes, I recollect, were gray, and black, and brown, and blue, and when he was not bald, his hair was of chameleon hue, lean, fat, tall, short, rich, poor, grave, gay, a blonde and a brunette. Aha, amid this London fog, John Smith, I see you yet, I see you yet, and yet the sight is all so blurred I seem to see you in composite, or as in a waking dream. Which are you, John? I'd like to know that I might weave a rhyme appropriate to your character, your politics and clime. So tell me, were you, raised, or reared, your pedigree confess in some such treacherousism as, I reckon, or I guess, let fall your telltale dialect, 
that instantly I may identify my countrymen. John Smith, USA. It's like as not you are the John that lived a spell ago down east, where codfish, beans and de bona fide schoolmarms grow, where the dear old homestead nestles like among the Hampshire hills and where the robin hops about the cherry boughs and trills, where Hubbard squash and de huckleberries grow to powerful size, and everything is orthodox from preachers down to pies, where the red-winged blackbirds swing and de call beside the pickerel pond, and the crows are cawing in the pines uv the pasture lot. Beyond where folks complain UV being poor, because their monies lend out west on farms and de railroads at the rate UV 10%, where we UST to spark the baker girls they comin' home from choir, or a set in nomine apples round the roaring kitchen fire, where we had to go to meetin' at least three times a week, and our mothers learned us good religious doctor Watts to speak, and where our grandmas sleep their sleep. God rest their souls, I say. And God bless yours, yef you're that John. John Smith, USA. Or, Meb, Colonel Smith, you are the gentleman I know in the country war the finest Democrats and de horses grow, war the ladies are all beautiful and war the crap of con is utilized for bourbon and true daughters are bound, you've run for judge, and killed your man, and bet on Proctor not, your heart is full of chivalry, your skin is full of shot, and I disremember war I've met with gentlemen so true as yo all in Kentucky. War blood and grass are blue, war a nigger with a ballot is the Signal F.O. a fight, war a yalla dog pursues the coon throughout the bammy night, war blooms the furtive possum, pride and glory of the south, and auntie makes a hoe cake, saw, that melts within yo mouth. War, all night long, the mocking birds are warbling in the trees and black-eyed Susans nod and blink at every passing breeze, war in a hallowed soil repose the ashes of our clay, hires looking at yo, Colonel. John Smith, U.S.A. Or was you that John Smith I knew out yonder in the West, that part of our republic I shall always love the best? Was you him that went prospecting in the spring of '69 in the Red Hoss Mountain country for the Goshalhamlock mine? Oh, how I'd like to clasp your hand and sit down by your side and talk about the good old days beyond the big divide, of the Rakabor, the snakes, the bear, the Rocky Mountain goat, of the Conversazioni Endi of Casey's Tabledote and a word of them old partners that stood by us long ago, three-fingered Hoover, sorry Tom and Parson Jim, you know. Old times, old friends, John Smith, would make our hearts beat high again, and we'd see the snow-top mountain like we used to see em then. The magpies would go fluttering like strange spirits to Endy Fro, and we'd hear the pines a singing in the ragged gulch below, and the mountain brook would loiter like upon its wind and way, easy if it waited for a child to join it in its play. You see, John Smith, just what you are I cannot well recall, and really, I am pleased to think you somehow must be all. For when a man sojourns abroad a while, as I have done, he likes to think of all the folks he left at home as one, and so they are. For well you know there's nothing in a name, our Browns, our Joneses and our Smiths are happily the same, all represent the spirit of the land across the sea, all stand for one high purpose in our country of the free. Whether John Smith be from the South, the North, the West, the East, so long as he's American, it mattereth not the least. Whether his crest be badger, bear, palmetto, sword or pine, he is the glory of the stars that with the stripes combine. Where'er he be, whatever his lot, he's eager to be known, not by his mortal name, but by his country's name alone. And so, compatriot, I am proud you wrote your name today upon the register at Lowe's. 
John Smith, USA. The Fisherman's Feast. Of all the gracious gifts of spring, is there another can safely surpass this delicate, voluptuous thing, this dapple-green, plump-shouldered base? Upon a damask napkin laid, what exhalations superfine augustatory nerves pervade, provoking quenchless thirsts for wine? The ancients loved this noble fish, and coming from the kitchen fire all piping hot upon a dish, what raptures did he not inspire? Fish should swim twice. They used to say, once in their native vapid brine, and then a better way, you understand? Fetch on the wine. Ah, dainty monarch of the flood, how often have I cast for you, how often sadly seen you scud where weeds and pussy willows grew, how often have you filched my bait, how often have you snapped my treacherous line, yet here I have you on this plate. You shall swim twice, and now in wine. And hark ye, garçon, let the blood of cobwebbed years be spilt for him, I, in a rich burgundy flood this piscatorial pride should swim. So, were he living, he should say he gladly died for me and mine, and, as it was his native spray, he'd lash the sauce. What, ho! The wine! I would it were ordained for me to share your fate, O finny friend. I surely were not loath to be reserved for such a noble end, for when old Kronos, gaunt and grim, at last reels in his ruthless line, what were my ecstasy to swim in wine, in wine, in glorious wine? Well, here's a health to you, sweet spring. And prithee, whilst I stick to earth, come hither every year and bring the boons provocative of mirth. And should your stock of base run low, however much I might repine, I think I might survive the blow if plied with wine, and still more wine. To John J. Knickerbocker, J.R. Whereas, good friend, it doth appear you do possess the notion to his a while away from here to lands across the ocean. Now, by these presents we would show that, wheresoever wind you, and wheresoever gales may blow, our friendship shall attend you. What though on Scotia's banks and braes you pluck the bonny gowan, or chat of old Chicago days o'er Berlin brew with Cowan? What though you stroll some boulevard in Paris, say La Belleville, or make the round of Scotland Yard with our lamented Melville? Shall paltry leagues of foaming brine true heart from true heart sever? No, in this draught of honest wine we pledge it, comrade, never. Though mountain waves between us roll, come fortune or disaster, twill knit us closer soul to soul and bind our friendships faster. So here's a bowl that shall be quaffed to loyalty's devotion, and here's to fortune that shall waft your ship across the ocean, and here's a smile for those who prayed of Davy Jones's locker, and here's a prayer in every fate. God bless you, Knickerbocker. The Bottle and the Bird Once on a time a friend of mine prevailed on me to go to see the dazzling splendors of a sinful ballet show and after we had reveled in the saltatory sights we sought a neighboring café for more tangible delights. When I demanded of my friend what viands he preferred, he quoth, A large cold bottle and a small hot bird. Fool that I was, I did not know what anguish hidden lies within the morsel that allures the nostrils and the eyes. There is a glorious candor in an honest quart of wine, a certain inspiration which I cannot well define. How it bubbles, how it sparkles, how its gurgling seems to say. Come, on a tide of rapture let me float your soul away. But the crispy, steaming mouthful that is spread upon your plate, how it discounts human sapience and satirizes fate. You wouldn't think a thing so small could cause the pains and aches that certainly accrue to him that of that thing partakes. To me, at least, a guileless white, 
It never once occurred what horror was encompassed in that one small hot bird. Oh, what a head I had on me when I awoke next day, and what a firm conviction of intestinal decay. What seas of mineral water and of bromide I applied to quench those fierce volcanic fires that rioted inside. And oh, the thousand solemn, awful vows I plighted then never to tax my system with a small hot bird again. The doctor seemed to doubt that birds could worry people so, but bless him. Since I ate the bird, I guess I ought to know. The acidous condition of my stomach, so he said, bespoke a vinous irritant that amplified my head, and ergo, the causation of the thing, as he inferred, was the large cold bottle, not the small hot bird. Of course, I know it wasn't, and I'm sure you'll say I'm right if ever it has been your wont to train around at night. How sweet is retrospection when one's heart is bathed in wine, and before its balmy breath how do the ills of life decline. How the gracious juices drown what griefs would vex a mortal breast, and float the flattered soul into the port of dreamless rest. But you, O noxious, pygmy bird, whether it be you fly or paddle in the stagnant pools that sweltering, festering lie, I curse you and your evil kind for that you do me wrong, engendering poisons that corrupt my petted muse of song. Go, get thee hence, and nevermore discomfit me and mine. I fain would barter all thy brood for one sweet draught of wine. So hither come, O sport of youth. When fades the telltale day, come hither with your fillets and your wreaths of posies gay. We shall unloose the fragrant seas of seething, frothing wine which now the cobwebbed glass and endious wire and corks confine, and midst the pleasing reverie the praises shall be heard of the large cold bottle, not the small hot bird. The man who worked with Dana on the sun. There showed up out in Denver in the spring of 81 a man who'd worked with Dana on the New York Sunday his name was Cantel Whoppers, and he was a sight to view easy he walked into the orifice and he inquired for work to do. There weren't no places vacant then, fair. Be it understood, that was the time when talent flourished at that altitude. But thou the stranger lingered. Tellin' Raymond Endy the rest uv what prodigious wonders he could do when at his best. Till finally he stated, quite by chance, that he had done a heap uv work with Dana on the New York Sun. Wall, that was quite another thing. We owned that airy cuss who'd worked far Mr. Dana must be good enough for us. And so we tucked the stranger's word and denipped him while we could, for if we didn't take him we knew John Arkins would, and Cooper, too, was mousin' round for enterprise and brains, whenever them commodities blew in across the plains. At any rate, we nailed him, which made old Cooper swear and Arkins tear out handfuls uv his copious curly hair, but we sat back and cackled, and he had a power uv fun with our man who'd worked with Dana on the New York Sun. It made our eyes hang on our cheeks and he lower jaws to drop to hear that feller tellin' how old Dana run his shop. It seems that Dana was the biggest man you ever saw. He lived on human beings and he preferred to eat em raw. If he had democratic drugs to take, before he took em, as good old allopathic laws prescribe, he always shook em. The man that could set down Andy right like Dana never grew, and the sum of human knowledge wasn't half what Dana knew. The consequence appeared to be that nearly everyone concurred with Mr. Dana of the New York Sun. This feller, Cantel Whoppers, never brought an item in. He spent his time at Perrin's Shaken Poker Dice F.R. Gin. Whatever the assignment, he was always sure to shirk. He was very long on liquor and all fired short on work. If any other cuss had played the tricks he dared to play, the daisies would be bloomin' over his remains today. 
but somehow, folks respected him and stood him to the last, considering his superior connections in the past. So, when he built at poker, not a sucker drew a gun on the man who'd worked with Dana on the New York Sun. Wall Dana came to Denver in the fall UV-83, a very different party from the man we thought to see. A nice and clean old gentleman, so dignified and calm, you bet your life he never did no human being harm. A certain hearty manner and a fullness UV the vest betoken that his spirits and his vittles was the best. His face was so benevolent, his smile so sweet and kind, that they seemed to be the reflex UV an honest, healthy mind, and God had set upon his head a crown UV silver hair and promise of the golden crown he meaneth him to wear. So, UV us boys that met him out in Denver there was none but fell in love with Dana UV the New York son. But when he came to Denver in that fall UV-83 his old friend, Kentel Whoppers, disappeared upon a spree. The very thought UVC and Dana worked upon him so, they hadn't been together for a year or two, you know, that he borrowed all the stuff he could and started on a bat. And strange as it may seem, we didn't see him after that. So when old Dana hove in sight we couldn't understand why he didn't seem to notice that his crony wind on hand. No casual allusion. Not a question. No, not one. For the man who'd worked with Dana on the New York Sun. We broke it gently to him, but he didn't seem surprised. There was no big burst UV passion as we fellers had surmised. He said that Whoppers was a man he didn't never heard about, but he might have carried papers on a Jersey City route, and then he recollected hearing Mr. Laughlin say that he fired a man named Whoppers for being drunk one day, which, with more liquor underneath than money in his vest, had started on a freight train for the great and he bound in west, but further information or statistics he had none UV the man who'd worked with Dana on the New York Sunday. We dropped the matter quietly and he never made no fuss. When we get played fair suckers, why, that's a horse on us. But every now and then we Denver fellers have to laugh to hear some other paper boast UV having on its staff a man who's worked with Dana. Andy then we fellas wink and pull our hats down on our eyes and he set around and he think. It seems like Dana couldn't be as smart as people say if he educates so many folks and he lets them get away. And, as for us, in future we'll be very apt to shun the man who worked with Dana on the New York Sun. But bless ye, Mr. Dana. May you live a thousand years, to sort o' keep things lively in this vale of human tears. And may I live a thousand too, a thousand, less a day for I shouldn't like to be on earth to hear you'd passed away. And when it comes your time to go you'll need no Latin chaff nor biographic data put in your epitaph, but one straight line of English and of truth will let folks know the homage and the gratitude and the reverence they owe. You'll need no epitaph but this. Here sleeps the man who run that best and the brightest paper, the New York Sunday. A Democratic him. Republicans of differing views are pro or con protection. If that's the issue they would choose, why, we have no objection. The issue we propose concerns our hearts and homes more nearly, a wife to whom the nation turns and venerates so dearly. So, confident of what shall be, our gallant host advances, giving three cheers for Grover C., and three times three for Francis. So gentle is that honored dame, and fair beyond all telling, the very mention of her name sets every breast to swelling. She wears no mortal crown of gold, no courtiers fawn around her, but with their love young hearts and old and loyalty have crowned her, and so with Grover and his bride we're proud to take our chances, 
and it's three times three for the twain give we, but particularly for Francis. The blue and the gray. The blue and the gray collided one day in the future great town of Missouri, and if all that we hear is the truth, twould appear that they tackled each other with fury. While the weather waxed hot they hove and they sought, like the scow in the famous old story, and what made the fight an enjoyable sight was the fact that they fought con amore. They as participants fought in such wise as was taught, as beseemed the old days of the dragons, when you led to the dance and defended with lance the damsel you pledged in your flagons. In their dialect way the knights of the gray gave a flout at the buckeye bandana, and the buckeye came back with a gosh awful whack, and that's what's the matter with Hannah. This resisted attack took the greys all a back, and feeling less coltish and frisky, they resolved to elate the cause of their state, and also their persons, with whiskey. Having made ample use of the treacherous juice, which some folks say stings like an adder, they went back again at the handkerchief men, who slowly got madder and madder. You can bet it was H, L in the Southern Hotel and elsewhere, too many to mention, but the worst of it all was achieved in the hall where the president held his convention. They ripped and they hewed and they, sweating and brewed, volleyed and bellowed and thundered. There was nothing to do until these yawpers got through, so the rest of us waited and wondered. As the result of these phrase it appears that the greys, who once were as chipper as daisies, have changed their complexion to one of dejection, and at present are bluer than blazes. It is the printer's fault. In Mrs. Potter's latest play the costuming is fine. Her waist is made décolleté. Her skirt is new design. Summer heat. Nay, why discuss this summer heat, of which vain people tell? O oh, sinner, rather were it meet to fix thy thoughts on hell. The punishment ordained for you in that infernal spot is het by Satan's impish crew and kept forever hot. Sumatra might be reckoned nice, and Tophet passing cool, and Sodom were a cake of ice beside that sulfur pool. An awful stench and dismal wail come from the broiling souls, while Satan with his fireproof tail stirs up the brimstone coals. O oh, sinner, on this end tis meet that thou shouldst ponder well, for what, oh, what, is worldly heat unto the heat of hell? Plaint of the Missouri coon in the Berlin Zoological Gardens. Friend, by the way you hump yourself you're from the States, I know, and born in old Missouri, where the coons in plenty grow. I, too, am a native of that clime. But harsh, relentless fate has doomed me to an exile far from that noble state, and I, who used to climb around and swing from tree to tree, now lead a life of ignominious ease, as you can see. Have pity, O compatriot mine, and bide a season near while I unfurl a dismal tale to catch your friendly ear. My pedigree is noble. They used my grandsire's skin to piece a coat for Patterson to warm himself within. Tom Patterson of Denver. No ermine can compare with the grizzled robe that democratic statesman loves to wear. Of such a grandsire I have come, and in the county coal, all up in ancient cottonwood, our family had its hole. We envied not the liveried pomp nor proud estate of kings as we hustled around from day to day in search of bugs and things. And when the darkness fell around, a mocking bird was nigh, inviting pleasant, soothing dreams with his sweet lullaby. And sometimes came the yellow dog to brag around all night that nary coon could whoop him in a stand-up barrel fight. We simply smiled and let him howl. For all Missourians know that airy coon can beat a dog if the coon gets half a show. But we nestle close and shiver when the mellow moon had risen, and the hungry nigger sought our lair in hopes to make us his end. Raised as I was, it's hardly strange I pine for those old days. 
I cannot get acclimated or used to German ways. The vittles that they give me here may all be very fine for vulgar, common palates, but they will not do for mine. The coon that's been used to stanch democratic cheer will not put up with onion tarts and sausage steeped in beer. No, let the rest, from meat and drink, accede to slavish terms, but send me back from whence I came and let me grub for worms. They come, these gaping Teutons do, on Sunday afternoons and wonder what I am. Alas, there are no German coons. For if there were, I might still swing at home from tree to tree, a symbol of democracy that's woolly, blithe and free. And yet for what my captors are I would not change my lot, for I have tasted liberty. These others, they have not. So, even caged, the democratic coon more glory feels than the conscript German puppets with their swords about their heels. Well, give my love to Crittenden, to Clardy and O'Neill, to Jasper Burke and Colonel Jones, and tell them how I feel. My compliments to Cockrell, Munford, Switzler, Hasbrook, Vest, Bill Nelson, J. Wes Goodwin, Judge Broadhead and the rest. Bid them be steadfast in the faith and pay no heed at all to Joe McCullough's badinage or Chauncey Philly's gall. And urge them to retaliate for what I'm suffering here by cinching all the alien class that wants its Sunday beer. The Bibliomaniac's Bride The women folk are like to books, most pleasing to the eye, whereon if anybody looks he feels disposed to buy. I hear that many are for sale, those that record no dates, and such additions as regale the view with colored plates. Of every quality and grade and size they may be found, quite often beautifully made, as often poorly bound. Now, as for me, had I my choice, I'd choose no folio tall, but some octavo to rejoice my sight and heart withal. As plump and pudgy as a snipe, well worth her weight in gold, of honest, clean, conspicuous type, and just the size to hold. With such a volume for my wife, how should I keep in con? How like a dream should speed my life unto its colophon. Her frontispiece should be more fair than any colored plate. Blooming with health she would not care to extra-illustrate. And in her pages there should be a wealth of prose and verse, with now and then a jeu d'esprit, but nothing ever worse. Prose for me when I wished for prose, verse, when to verse inclined, forever bringing sweet repose to body, heart, and mind. Oh, I should bind this priceless prize in bindings full and fine, and keep her where no human eyes should see her charms, but mine. With such a fair unique as this, what happiness abounds. Who, who could paint my rapturous bliss, my joy unknown to lounds? Ezra J. M. Manus to a soubrette. Tis years, soubrette, since last we met, and yet, I yet, how swift and tender my thoughts go back in time's dull track to you, sweet pink of female gender. I shall not say, though others may, that time all human joy enhances, but the same old thrill comes to me still with memories of your songs and dances. Soubrettish ways these latter days invite my praise, but never get it, I still am true to yours and you. My record's made, I'll not upset it. The pranks they play, the things they say, I'd blush to put the like on paper, and I'll avow they don't know how to dance, so awkwardly they caper. I used to sit down in the pit, and see you flit like elf or fairy across the stage, and I'll engage no moonbeam sprite were half so airy. Lo! Everywhere about me there were rivals reeking with pomatum, and if perchance they caught a glance in song or dance, how did I hate em? At half-past ten came rapture, then of all those men was I most happy, 
for wine and things and food for kings and tete-a-tetes were on the tapis. Did you forget, my fair soubrette, those suppers in the café rector, the cozy nook where we partook of sweeter draughts than fabled nectar? Oh, happy days, when youth's wild ways knew every phase of harmless folly. Oh, blissful nights whose fierce delights defied gaunt-featured melancholy. Gone are they all beyond recall, and I, a shade, a mere reflection, am forced to feed my spirit's greed upon the husks of retrospection. And lo! Tonight the phantom light that as a sprite flits on the fender reveals a face whose girlish grace brings back the feeling, warm and tender, and all the while the old-time smile plays on my visage, grim and wrinkled, as though, soubrette, your footfalls yet upon my rusty heartstrings tinkled. The monstrous pleasant ballad of the tailor pup. Now lie then listen, gentles all, now lie ye all and hark unto a ballad I shall sing about Buena Park. Of all the wonders happening there the strangest hap befell upon a famous April morn, as you I now shall tell. It is about the tailor pup and of his mistress eke, and of the pranking time they had that I would fain to speak. Fit the first. The pup was of a noble mane as e'er you gazed upon. They called his mother lady and his father was a don. And both his mother and his sire were of the race Bernard, the family famed in histories and hymned of every bard. His form was of exuberant mold, long, slim and loose of joints. There never was a pointer dog so full as he of points. His hair was like a yellow fleece, his eyes were black and kind, and like a nodding, gilded plume his tail stuck up behind. His bark was very, very fierce and fierce his appetite, yet was it only things to eat that he was prone to bite. But in that one particular he was so passing true that never did he quit a meal until he had got through. Potatoes, biscuits, mush or hash, joint, chop, or chicken limb, so long as it was edible, twas all the same to him. And frequently when hunger's pangs assailed that callow pup, he masticated boots and gloves or chewed a doormat up. So was he much beholden of the folk that him did keep. They loved him when he was awake and better still asleep. Fit the second. Now once his master lingering o'er his breakfast coffee cup, observed unto his doting spouse, You ought to wash the pup. That shall I do this very day. His doting spouse replied, You will not know the pretty thing when he is washed and dried. But tell me, dear, before you go unto your daily work, shall I use ivory soap on him? or Colgate, Pears, or Kirk. Odzooks, it matters not a whit. They all are good to use. Take Perline, if it pleases you, Sapolio, if you choose. Take any soap, but take the pup and also water take, and mix the three discreetly up till they allow their make. Then mixing these constituent parts, let nature take her way. With such advice that sapient sir had nothing more to say. Then fared he to his daily toil all in the board of trade while Mistress Taylor for that bath due preparations made. Fit the third. She whistled gaily to the pup and called him by his name, and presently the guileless thing all unsuspecting came. But when she shut the bathroom door and caught him as catch-can, and dove him in that odious tub, his sorrows then began. How did that callow, yellow thing regret that April morn, alas! How bitterly he rued the day that he was born! Twice and again! But all in vain he lifted up his wail. His voice was all the pup could lift, for thereby hangs this tale. Twas by that tale she held him down, and presently she spread the creamery lather on his back, his stomach and his head. His ears hung down in sorry wise, his eyes were, oh, 
so sad. He looked as though he just had lost the only friend he had. And higher yet the water rose, the lather still increased, and sadder still the countenance of that poor martyred beast. Yet all this time his mistress spoke such artful words of cheer as, Oh, how nice, and oh, how clean, and there's a patient dear. At last the trial had an end, at last the pup was free. She threw wide the bathroom door. Now get you gone, quoth she. Fit the fourth. Then from that tub and from that room he got with vast ado. At every hop he gave a shake and how the water flew. He paddled down the winding stairs and to the parlor hide, dispensing pools of foamy suds and slop on every side. Upon the carpet then he rolled and brushed against the wall, and horror! Whist his lathery sides on overcoat and shawl. Attracted by the dreadful din, his mistress came below. Who, who can speak her wonderment? Who, who can paint her woe? Great smears of soap were here and there. Her startled vision met with blots of lather everywhere, and everything was wet. Then Mrs. Taylor gave a shriek like one about to die. Get out, get out, and don't you dare come until you are dry. With that she opened wide the door and waved the critter through. Out in the circumambient air with grateful yelp he flew. Fit the fifth. He whisked into the dusty street and to the wall a lot where Bonnie Annie Evans played with charming sissy knot. And with these pretty little dears he mixed himself all up. Oh, fie upon such boisterous play. Fie, fie, you naughty pup. Woe, woe on Annie's India mull and sissy's blue percale. One got the pup's belathered flanks and won his soapy tail. Forth to the rescue of those maids rushed gallant Willie Clow. His panties they were white and clean. Where are those panties now? Where is the nicely laundered shirt that Kendall Evans wore, and Robbie Jane's tricot coat all buttoned up before? The leaven, which, as we are told, leavens a monstrous lump, hath far less reaching qualities than a wet pup on the jump. This way and that he swung and swayed, he gambled far and near, and everywhere he thrust himself he left a soapy smear. Fit the sixth. That noon a dozen little deers were spanked and put to bed with not to stay their appetites, but cheerless crusts of bread. That noon a dozen hired girls washed out each gown and shirt which that exuberant tailor pup had frescoed o'er with dirt. That whole day long the April sun smiled sweetly from above on clothes lines flaunting to the breeze with emblems mother's love. That whole day long the tailor pup this way and that did high upon his mad, erratic course intent on getting dry. That night when Mr. Taylor came his vesper meal to eat, he uttered things my pious pen would liefer not repeat. Yet still that noble tailor pup survives to romp and bark and stumble over folks and things in fair Buena Park. Good sooth, I what he should be called Buena's favorite son who sired of such a noble sire, and damned by everyone. Long meter. All human joys are swift of wing for heaven doth so allot at that when you get an easy thing you find you haven't got it. Man never yet has loved a maid, but they were sure to part, sir nor never lacked a paltry spade but that he drew a heart, sir. Go, Chauncey. It is plain as day you much prefer a dinner to walking straight in wisdom's way. Go to, thou babbling sinner. The froward part that you have played to me this lesson teaches, to trust no man whose stock in trade is after-dinner speeches. To DeWitt Miller. Dear Miller, you and I despise the cad who gathers books to sell them, be they but sixteen mows in cloth or stately folios garbed in vellum. But when one fellow has a prize another bibliophile is needing, why then, 
a satisfactory trade is quite a laudable proceeding. There's precedent in Bristol's case the great collector, preacher-farmer, and in the case of that divine who shrives the soul of P.D. Armour. When from their sapient, saintly lips the words of wisdom are not dropping, they turn to trade, that is to say, when they're not preaching they are swapping. So to the flock it doth appear that this a most conspicuous fact is, that which these godly pastors do must surely be a proper practice. Now, here's a pretty prize, indeed, on which Divini's art is lavished. Harky! The bonny, dainty thing is simply waiting to be ravished. And you have that for which I pine as you should pine for this fair creature. Come, now, suppose we make a trade. You take this gem, and send the beecher. Surely, these graceful, tender songs, in Samite garb with lots of gilt on, are more to you than those dull tone? Her pastor gave to Lizzie Tilton. Francois Villon. If I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I, what would it matter to me how the time might drag or fly? He would in sweaty anguish toil the days and night away, and still not keep the prowling, growling, howling wolf at bay. But with my valiant bottle and my frowsy brevet bride, and my score of loyal cutthroats standing guard for me outside, what worry of the morrow would provoke a casual sigh if I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I? If I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I, to yonder gloomy boulevard at midnight I would hie. Stop, stranger! And deliver your possessions, ere you feel the metal of my bludgeon or the temper of my steel. He should give me gold and diamonds, his snuff-box and his cane. Now back, my boon companions, to our brothel with our gain. And back within that brothel, how the bottles they would fly, if I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I. If I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I, we both would mock the gibbet which the law has lifted high, he in his meager, shabby home, I in my roaring den, he with his babes around him, I with my hunted men. His virtue be his bulwark, my genius should be mine. Go fetch my pen, sweet Margot, and a jorum of your wine. So would one vainly plod, and one win immortality, if I were Francois Villon and Francois Villon I. Lydia Dick. When I was a boy at college, filling up with classic knowledge, frequently I wondered why old Professor Demas Bentley used to praise so eloquently. Opera Horatii. Toiling on a season longer till my reasoning power got stronger, as my observation grew, I became convinced that mellow, massacloving poet fellow Horace knew a thing or two. Yes, we sophomores figured duly that, if we appraised him truly, Horace must have been a brick, and no wonder that with ranting rhymes he went a gallivanting round with sprightly Lydia Dick. For that pink of female gender tall and shapely was, and slender, plump of neck and bust and arms, while the raiment that invested her so jealously suggested certain more potential charms. Those dark eyes of her that fired him, those sweet accents that inspired him, and her crown of glorious hair, these things baffle my description. I should have a fit conniption if I tried, so I forbear. Maybe Lydia had her betters. Anyway, this man of letters took that charmer as his pick. Glad, yes, glad I am to know it. I, a fin de siècle poet, sympathize with Lydia Dick. Often in my arbor shady I fall thinking of that lady and the pranks she used to play, and I'm cheered, for all we sages joy when from those distant ages Lydia dances down our way. Otherwise some folks might wonder with good reason why in thunder-learned professors, dry and prim, find such solace in the giddy pranks that Horace played with Liddy, or that Liddy played on him. 
Still this world of ours rejoices in those ancient singing voices, and our hearts beat high and quick, to the cadence of old Tiber murmuring praise of roisteringly bear and of charming Lydia Dick. Still, Digentia, downward flowing, prattleth to the roses blowing by the dark, deserted grot, still, Soract, looming lonely, watcheth for the coming only of a ghost that cometh not. The Tin Bank Speaking of banks, I'm bound to say that a bank of tin is far the best, and I know of one that has stood for years in a pleasant home away out west. It has stood for years on the mantelpiece between the clock and the wedgewood plate. A wonderful bank, as you'll concede when you've heard the things I'll now relate. This bank was made of McKinley tin, well soldered up at sides and back. But it didn't resemble tin at all, for they painted it over an iron black. And that it really was a bank was an easy thing to see and say, for above the door in gorgeous red appeared the letters B and K. The bank had been so well devised and wrought so cunningly that when you put your money in at the hole it couldn't get out of that hole again. Somewhere about that stanch, snug thing a secret spring was hid away, but where it was or how it worked, excuse me, please, but I will not say. Thither, with dimpled cheeks aglow, came pretty children oftentimes, and standing up on stool or chair, put in their divers pence and dimes. Once Uncle Hank came home from town after a cycle of grand events, and put in a round, blue, ivory thing, he said was good for fifty cents. The bank went clinkety-clinkety-clink, and larger grew the precious sum which Grandma said she hoped would prove a gracious boon to heathendom. But there were those, I call no names, who did not fancy any plan that did not in some wise involve the candy and banana man. Listen, once when the wind went, yeah, and the raven croaked in the tangled tarn, when, with a wail, the screech owl flew out of her lair in the haunted barn. There came three burglars down the road, three burglars skilled in arts of sin, and they cried, What's this? Aha! Oh ho! And straightway tackled the bank of tin. They burgled from half past ten p.m., till the village bell struck four o'clock. They hunted and searched and guessed and tried, but the little tin bank would not unlock. They couldn't discover the secret spring. So, when the barnyard rooster crowed, they up with their tools and stole away with the bitter remark that they'd be blowed. Next morning came a sweet-faced child and reached her dimpled hand to take a nickel to send to the heathen poor and a nickel to spend for her stomach's sake. She pressed the hidden secret spring, and lo, the bank flew open then with a cheery creak that seemed to say, I'm glad to see you. Come again. If you were I, and if I were you, what would we keep our money in? In a downtown bank of British steel, or an at-home bank of McKinley tin? Some want silver and some want gold, but the little tin bank that wants the two and is run on the double standard plan. Why, that is the bank for me and you. In New Orleans. Twas in the Crescent City not long ago befell the tear-compelling incident I now propose to tell. So come, my sweet collector friends, and listen while I sing unto your delectation this brief, pathetic thing. No lyric pitched in vaunting key, but just a requiem of blowing twenty dollars in by nine o'clock a.m. Let critic folk the poet's use of vulgar slang upbraid, but when I'm speaking by the card, I call a spade a spade, and I, who have been touched of that same mania, myself, am well aware that, when it comes to parting with his pelf, the curio collector is so blindly lost in sin that he doesn't spend his money, he simply blows it in. In Royal Street, near Conti, there's a lovely curio shop, and there, one balmy, fateful morn, it was my chance to stop, 
To stop was hesitation. In a moment I was lost. That kind of hesitation does not hesitate at cost. I spied a pewter tankard there, and my. It was a gem, and the clock in old S.T. Lewis told the hour of 8 a.m. Three quaint bohemian bottles, two, of yellow and of green, cut in archaic fashion that I ne'er before had seen. A lovely, hideous platter wreathed about with pink and rose, with its curious depression into which the gravy flows. Two dainty silver salters. Oh, there was no resisting them, Dot, and I'd blown in twenty dollars by nine o'clock a.m. With twenty dollars, one who is a prudent man, indeed, can buy the wealth of useful things his wife and children need. Shoes, stockings, knickerbockers, gloves, bibs, nursing bottles, caps, a gown, the gown for which his spouse too long has pined, perhaps. These and ten thousand other specters harrow and condemn the man who's blowing in twenty by nine o'clock a.m. Oh, mean advantage conscience takes, and one that I abhor, in asking one this question. What did you buy it for? Why doesn't conscience ply its blessed trade before the act, before one's cussedness becomes a bald, accomplished fact, before one's fallen victim to the tempter's stratagem and blown in twenty dollars by nine o'clock a.m.? Ah, me! Now the deed is done, how penitent I am! I was a roaring lion, behold a bleeding lamb. I've packed and shipped those precious things to that most precious wife who shares with our sweet babes the strange vicissitudes of life, while he, who, in his folly, gave up his store of wealth, is far away, and means to keep his distance, for his health. The Peter Bird Out of the woods by the creek cometh a calling for Peter, from the orchard a voice echoes and echoes it over, down in the pasture the sheep hear that strange crying for Peter, over the meadows that call as I and forever repeated. So let me tell you the tale, when, where and how it all happened, and when the story is told, let us pay heed to the lesson. Once on a time, long ago, lived in the state of Kentucky one that was reckoned a witch, full of strange spells and devices. Nightly she wandered the woods, searching for charms viduistic, scorpions, lizards, and herbs, dormice, chameleons, and plantains, serpents and cawcaws and bats, screech owls and crickets and adders, these were the guides of the witch through the dank deeps of the forest. Then, with her roots and her herbs, back to her cave in the morning ambled that hussy to brew spells of unspeakable evil. And when the people awoke, seeing the hillside and valley sweltered in swathes as of mist. Look! They would whisper in terror. Look! The old witch is at work brewing her spells of great evil. Then would they pray till the sun, darting his rays through the vapor lifted the smoke from the earth and baffled the witch's intentions. One of the boys at that time was a certain young person named Peter, given too little to work, given too largely to dreaming, fonder of books than of chores you can imagine that Peter led a sad life on the farm, causing his parents much trouble. Peter! His mother would call. The cream is a ready for churning. Peter! His father would cry. Go grub at the weeds in the garden. So it was. Peter! All day, calling, reminding and chiding, Peter neglected his work, therefore that nagging at Peter. Peter got hold of some books, how I'm unable to tell you, some have suspected the witch. This is no place for suspicions. It is sufficient to stick close to the thread of the legend. Nor is it stated or guessed what was the trend of those volumes. What thing soever it was, done with a pen and a pencil, wrought with the brain, not a hoe, surely twas hostile to farming. Fudge on the readin', they quoth. That's what's the ruin of Peter. 
So, when the mornings were hot, under the beech or the maple, cushioned in grass that was blue, breathing the breath of the blossoms, lulled by the hum of the bees, the coo of the ringdove's a-mating, Peter would frivol his time at reading, or lazing, or dreaming. Peter! His mother would call. The cream is a-ready for churning. Peter! His father would cry. Go grub at the weeds in the garden. Peter! And, Peter! All day, calling, reminding and chiding, Peter neglected his chores. Therefore that outcry for Peter. Therefore the neighbors allowed evil would surely befall him. Yes, on account of these things, ruin would come upon Peter. Surely enough, on a time, reading and lazing and dreaming wrought the calamitous ill all had predicted for Peter. For, of a morning in spring when lay the mist in the valleys. See, quoth the folk, how the witch breweth her evil decoctions. See how the smoke from her fire brudeth on woodland and meadow. Grant that the sun cometh out to smother the smudge of her cauldron. She hath been forth in the night, full of her spells and devices, roaming the marshes and dells for heathenish musical nostrums, digging in leaves and at stumps for centipedes, pissmires and spiders, grubbing in poisonous pools for hot salamanders and toadstools, charming the bats from the flues, snaring the lizards by twilight, sucking the scorpion's egg and milking the breast of the adder. Peter derided these things held in such faith by the farmer, scouted at magic and charms, hooted at Jonah's and hoodoos, thinking the reading of books must have unsettled his reason. There ain't no witches, he cried. It isn't smoky, but foggy. I will go out in the wet. You all can't hinder me, nuther. Surely enough he went out into the damp of the morning, into the smudge that the witch spread over woodland and meadow, into the fleecy gray pall brooding on hillside and valley. Laughing and scoffing, he strode into that hideous vapor, just as he said he would do, just as he bantered and threatened, ere they could fasten the door, Peter had gone and done it. Wasting his time over books, you see, had unsettled his reason, sodden his callow young brain with semi-pubescent paresis, and his neglect of his chores hastened this evil condition. Out of the woods by the creek cometh a calling for Peter and from the orchard a voice echoes and echoes it over. Down in the pasture the sheep hear that shrill crying for Peter. Up from the spring house the wail stealeth anon like a whisper, over the meadows that call as I and forever repeated. Such are the voices that hooped wildly and vainly for Peter decades and decades ago down in the state of Kentucky. Such are the voices that cry from the woodland and meadow. Peter, oh Peter! All day, calling, reminding, and chiding, taking us back to the time when Peter he done gone and done it. These are the voices of those left by the boy in the farmhouse when, with his laughter and scorn, hatless and bootless and sockless, clothed in his jeans and his pride, Peter sailed out in the weather, broke from the warmth of his home into that fog of the devil, into the smoke of that which brewing her damnable porridge. Lo, when he vanished from sight, knowing the evil that threatened, forth with importunate cries hastened his father and mother. Peter! They shrieked in alarm. Peter! and evermore. Peter! Ran from the house to the barn, ran from the barn to the garden, ran to the corn crib anon, then to the smokehouse proceeded. Henhouse and woodpile they passed, calling and wailing and weeping, through the front gate to the road, braving the hideous vapor, sought him in lane and on pike, called him in orchard and meadow, clamoring. Peter! In vain, vainly outcrying for Peter. Joining the search came the rest, brothers, and sisters and cousins, 
venting unspeakable fears and pitiful wailing for Peter, and from the neighboring farms gathered the men and the women, who, upon hearing the news, swelled the loud chorus for Peter. Farmers and hussifs and maids, bosses and field hands and niggers, colonels and judges galore from cornfields and mintbeds and thickets. All that had voices to voice, all to those parts appertaining, came to engage in the search, gathered and bellowed for Peter. The Taylors, the Dorseys, the Browns, the Wallas, the Mitchells, the Logans. The Yenowines, Crittendons, Dukes, the Hickmans, the Hobbses, the Morgans. The Ormsbys, the Thompsons, the Hikes, the Williamsons, Mees and Hardens, the Bainroths, the Shirleys, the Hokes, the Haldermans, Harneys and Slaughters, all famed in Kentucky of old for prowess prodigious at farming, now surged from their prosperous homes to join in the hunt for the truant, to ascertain where he was at, to help out the chorus for Peter. Still on these prosperous farms were heirs and assigns of the people specified herein above and proved by the records of probate. Still on these farms shall you hear, and still on the turnpikes adjacent, that pitiful, petulant call, that pleading, expostulant wailing, that hopeless, monotonous moan, that crooning and droning for Peter. Some say the witch in her wrath transmogrified all those good people, that, wakened from slumber that day by the calling and bawling for Peter, she out of her cave in a trice, and waving the foot of a rabbit, crossed with the call of a coon and smeared with the blood of a chicken, she changed all these folks into birds and shrieking with demoniac venom. Fly away over the land, moaning your Peter forever, croaking of Peter, the boy who didn't believe there were hoodoos, crooning of Peter the fool who scouted at stories of witches, crying for Peter for I, forever out calling for Peter. This is the story they tell, so in good sooth saith the legend, as I have told, so tell the folk and the legend, that it is true I believe, for on the breeze of the morning come the shrill voices of birds calling and calling for Peter. Out of the maple and beech glittered the eyes of the whalers, peeping and peering for him who formerly lived in these places. Peter, the heretic lad, lazy and careless and dreaming, sorely afflicted with books and with pubescent paresis, hating the things of the farm, care of the barn and the garden, always neglecting his chores, given to books and to reading, which, as all people allow, turn the young person to mischief, harden his heart against toil, wean his affections from tillage. This is the legend of your told in the state of Kentucky when in the springtime the birds call from the beeches and maples, call from the petulant thorn, call from the acrid persimmon, when from the woods by the creek and from the pastures and meadows, when from the spring house and lane and from the mint bed and orchard, when from the redbud and gum and from redolent lilac, when from the dirt roads and pikes comes that calling for Peter. Cometh the dolorous cry, cometh that weird iteration of Peter and Peter for I of Peter and Peter forever. This is the legend of old, told in the tumpty meter which the great poets prefer, being less labor than rhyming, my first attempt at the same, my last attempt, too, I reckon, nor have I further to say, for the sad story is ended. Dibden's Ghost Dear wife, last midnight while I read the tomes you so despise, a specter rose beside the bed and spoke in this true wise. From Canaan's beatific coast I've come to visit thee, for I'm Frognall Dibden's ghost, says Dibden's ghost to me. I bade him welcome, and we twain discussed with buoyant hearts the various things that appertain to bibliomaniac arts. Since you are fresh from t'other side, pray tell me of that host that treasured books before they died, says I to Dibden's ghost. They've entered into perfect rest, for in the life they've won there are no auctions to molest, 
no creditors to dun. Their heavenly rapture has no bounds beside that jasper sea. It is a joy unknown to Lowndes, says Dibdin's ghost to me. Much I rejoice to hear him speak of bibliobliss above, for I am one of those who seek what bibliomaniacs love. But tell me, for I long to hear what doth concern me most. Are wives admitted to that sphere? says I to Dibdin's ghost. The women folk are few up there, for twere not fair you know that they are heavenly joy should share who vex us here below. The few are those who have been kind to husbands such as we, they knew our fads, and didn't mind, says Dibdin's ghost to me. But what of those who scold at us when we would read in bed? Or wanting vittles, make a fuss if we buy books, instead? And what of those who've dusted not our motley pride and boast? Shall they profane that sacred spot? says I to Dibdin's ghost. Oh, no! They tread that other path which leads where torments roll, and worms, yes, bookworms, vent their wrath upon the guilty soul. Untouched of bibliomaniac grace that savas such as we, they wallow in that dreadful place, says Dibdin's ghost to me. To my dear wife will I recite what things I've heard you say. She'll let me read the books by night she's let me buy by day. For we, together, by and by, would join that heavenly host. She's earned a rest as well as I, says I to Dibdin's ghost. An autumn treasure trove. Tis the time of the year's sundown, and flame hangs on the maple bough, and June is the faded flower of a name. The thin hedge hides not a singer now. Yet rich am I, for my treasures be the gold afloat in my willow tree. Sweet morn on the hillside dripping with dew, girded with blue and pearl, counts the leaves afloat in the streamlet too, as the lovelorn heart of a wistful girl, she sings while her soul brooding tearfully sees a dream of gold in the willow tree. All day pure white and saffron at eve, clouds awaiting the sun turn them at length to ghosts that leave when the moon's white path is slowly run till the morning comes, and with joy for me o'er my gold agleam in the willow tree. The lilacs that blew on the breast of May are an old and lost delight, and the rose lies ruined in his careless way as the wind turns the poplars under white. Yet richer am I for the autumn. See all my misty gold in the willow tree. When the poet came. The ferny places gleam at morn, the dew drips off the leaves of corn. Along the brook a mist of white fades as a kiss on lips of light. For, lo, the poet with his pipe finds all these melodies are ripe. Far up within the cadence June floats, silver-winged, a living tune that wins within the morning's chime and sets the earth and sky to rhyme. For, lo, the poet, absent long, breathes the first raptures of his song. Across the clover blossoms, wet, with dainty clumps of violet, and wild red roses in her hair, there comes a little maiden fair. I cannot more of June rehearse, she is the ending of my verse. Ah, nay! For through perpetual days of summer gold and filmy haze, when autumn dies and winter sleet, I yet will see those dew-washed feet, and o'er the tracks of life and time they make the cadence for my rhyme. The perpetual wooing. The dull world clamors at my feet and asks my hand in helping sweet, and wonders when the time shall be I'll leave off dreaming dreams of thee. It blames me coining soul and time and sending minted bits of rhyme, a wooing of thee still. Shall I make answer? This it is, I camp beneath thy galaxies of starry thoughts and shining deeds, and seeing new ones, I must needs arouse my speech to tell thee, dear, though thou art nearer, I am near, a wooing of thee still. I feel thy heart beat next mine own, its music hath a richer tone. I rediscover in thine eyes a bamir, dear paradise. 
I'm sure thou art a rarer girl, and so I seek thee, finest pearl, a wing of thee still. With blood of roses on thy lips, canst thou my trembling? Something slips between thy loveliness and me, so commonplace, so fond of thee. Ah, sweet, a kiss is waiting where that last one stopped thy lover's prayer, a wooing of thee still. When new light falls upon thy face, my gladdened soul discerns some trace of God, or angel, never seen in other days of shade and sheen. Ne'er may such rapture die, or less than joy like this my heart confess, a wooing of thee still. Go thou, O soul of beauty, go fleet-footed toward the heavens aglow. Mayhap, in following, thou shalt see me worthier of thy love and thee. Thou wouldst not have me satisfied until thou lovest me, none beside, a wooing of thee still. This was a song of years ago, of spring. Now drifting flowers of snow bloom on the windowsills as white as gray beard looking through love's light and holding blue-veined hands the while. He finds her last, the sweetest smile, a wooing of her still. My playmates. The wind comes whispering to me of the country green and cool, of red-winged blackbirds chattering beside a reedy pool. It brings me soothing fancies of the homestead on the hill, and I hear the thrush's evening song and the robin's morning trill. So I fall to thinking tenderly of those I used to know where the sassafras and snakeroot and checkerberries grow. What has become of Ezra Marsh who lived on Baker's Hill? And what's become of Noble Pratt whose father kept the mill? And what's become of Lizzie Crum and Anastasia Snell, and of Roxy Root who tended school in Boston for a spell? They were the boys and they the girls who shared my youthful play. They do not answer to my call. My playmates, where are they? What has become of Levi and his little brother Joe who lived next door to where we lived some forty years ago? I'd like to see the Newton boys and Quincy Adams Brown, and Hepsey Hall and Ella Cowles who spelled the whole school down, and Gracie Smith, the Cutler boys, Leander Snow and all who I'm sure would answer could they only hear my call. I'd like to see Bill Warner and the Conkey boys again and talk about the times we used to wish that we were men. And one, I shall not name her, could I see her gentle face and hear her girlish treble in this distant, lonely place. The flowers and hopes of springtime, they perished long ago, and the garden where they blossomed is white with winter snow. O cottage neath the maples, have you seen those girls and boys that but a little while ago made, oh, such pleasant noise? O trees, and hills, and brooks, and lanes, and meadows, do you know where I shall find my little friends of forty years ago? You see I'm old and weary, and I've traveled long and far. I am looking for my playmates. I wonder where they are. Medieval Eventide Song Come hither, little Kylda, and lie upon my breast tonight, for yonder fares an angel eyclid in raiment white, and yonder sings ye angel, as one the angels may, and high sange ben of a garden that bloometh far away. To them that have no little Kylda God sometimes sendeth down a little Kylda that ben a little lambkin of his own, and if so be they love that Kylda, he willeth it to stay, but elsewise, in his mercy he taketh it away. And sometimes, though they love it, God yearneth for ye Kylda, and sendeth angels singing whereby it ben beguiled. They fold their arms about ye lamb that crudleth at his play, and bear him to ye garden that bloometh far away. I will then not lose ye little lamb that God hath lent to me. If I cold sing that angel sange, hoy joysome my shoal be. For, with my arms about him my music in his ear, what angel sange of paradise soever shall I fear? So come, my little Kylda, and lie upon my breast tonight, for yonder fares an angel, 
Iclid and Raymond White, and yonder sings that angel, as one the angels may, and high Sanj ben of a garden that bloometh far away. Alaskan Balladry Crinkin was a little child. It was summer when he smiled. Off the hoary sea and grim stretched its white arms out to him, calling. Sunchild, come to me, let me warm my heart with thee. But the child heard not the sea calling, yearning evermore for the summer on the shore. Crinkin on the beach one day saw a maiden NIS at play. On the pebbly beach she played in the summer Crinkin maid. Fair and very fair was she, just a little child was he. Crinkin, said the maiden NIS, let me have a little kiss, just a kiss and go with me to the summer lands that be down within the silver sea. Crinkin was a little child, by the maiden NIS beguiled, hand in hand with her went he, and twas summer in the sea. And the hoary sea and grim to its bosom folded him, clasped and kissed the little form, and the ocean's heart was warm. But upon the misty shore winter brooded evermore. With that winter in my heart, often dead of night I start, start, and lift me up and weep, for those visions in my sleep mind me of the yonder deep. Tis his face lifts from the sea, tis his voice calls out to me, thus the winter bides with me. Crinkin was the little child by the maiden NIS beguiled. Off the hoary sea and grim reached its longing arms to him, calling. Sunchild, come to me, let me warm my heart with thee. But the sea calls out no more and tis winter on the shore, summer in the silver sea where with maiden NIS went he, and the winter bides with me. Armenian Folk Song, The Stork Welcome, O truant stork, and where have you been so long? And do you bring that grace of spring that filleth my heart with song? Descend upon my roof, bide on this ash content. I would have you know what cruel woe befell me when you went. All up in the moody sky, a shifting threat overhead, they were breaking the snow and bidding it go cover the beautiful dead. Came snow on garden spot, came snow on mere and wool, came the withering breath of white-robed death, and the once warm earth was cold. Stork, the tender rose tree, that bloometh when you are here, trembled and sighed like a waiting bride, then drooped on a virgin bier. But the brook that hath seen you come leaps forth with a hearty shout, and the crocus peeps from the bed where it sleeps to know what the noise is about. Welcome, O honest friend, and bide on my roof content, for my heart would sing of the grace of spring, when the winter of woe is spent. The Vision of the Holy Grail Dear Christ, let not the cheer of earth to fill our hearts with heedless mirth this holy Christmas time. But give us of thy heavenly cheer that we may hold thy love most dear and know thy peace sublime. Full merry waxed King Pell's court with yuletide cheer and yuletide sport. And, when the board was spread, now wit you well twas good to see so fair and brave a company with Pell's at the head. Come hence, Elaine, King Pell's cried. Come hence, and sit ye by my side, for never yet I trow, have gentle virtues like to thine been proved by sword nor pledged in wine, nor shall be nevermo. Sweet sir, my father, quoth Elaine, me it repents to give thee pain, yet tarry I may not, for I shall soon and I shall die if I behold this company and see not Lancelot. My heart shall have no love but this, my lips shall know no other kiss save only father thine, so grant me leave to seek my bower, the lonely chamber in the terray, where sleeps his child and mine. Then frowned the king in sore despite. A murin sees that traitorous knight, for that he lies, he cried. A base, unchristian pain him he, else, by my beard, he would not be a recreant to his bride. 
Oh, I had liefer yield my life than see thee the deserted wife of dastard Lancelot. Yet, and thou hast no mind to stay, go with thy damosels away. Lo, I'll detain ye not. Her damosels in goodly train back to her chamber led Elaine, and when her eyes were cast upon her babe, her tears did flow, and she did wail and weep as though her heart had like to brast. Though while she grieved the yuletide sport waxed loosier in King Pell's court, and louder, hour by hour, the echoes of the rout were borne to where the lady, all forlorn, made moaning in the terrain. Sweet Christ! She cried. Any let me hear their ribald sounds of yuletide cheer that mock at mine and me. Grunt that my sore afflictions cease, and give me of the heavenly peace that comes with thoughts of thee. Lo, as she spake, a wondrous light made all that lonely chamber bright, and o'er the infant sped a spirit hand, as Samite pale, held so dain forth the holy grail above the infant's head. And from the sacred golden cup a subtle incense floated up and filled the conscious air, which, when she breathed her, the fair Elaine forgot her grief, forgot her pain, forgot her sore despair. And as the grail's mysterious balm wrought in her heart a wondrous calm, great merveil t'was to see the sleeping child stretch one hand up as if in dreams he held the cup which none mought win but he. Through all the night King Pell's court made mighty cheer and goodly sport. Nor never wrecked the joy that was vouchsafed that Christ mass tied to Lancelot's deserted bride and to her sleeping boy. Sweet Christ, let not the cheer of earth to fill our hearts with heedless mirth this present Christ mass night but send among us to and fro thy holy grail, that men may know the joy wide wisdom dight. The divine lullaby. I hear thy voice, dear Lord, I hear it by the stormy sea, when winter nights are black and wild, and when, affright, I call to thee, it calms my fears and whispers me. Sleep well, my child. I hear thy voice, dear Lord, in singing winds and falling snow, the curfew chimes, the midnight bell. Sleep well, my child. It murmurs low. The guardian angels come and go. O child, sleep well. I hear thy voice, dear Lord, I, though the singing winds be stilled, though hushed the tumult of the deep, my fainting heart with anguish chilled by thy assuring tone is thrilled. Fear not, and sleep. Speak on, speak on, dear Lord. And when the last dread night is near, with doubts and fears and terrors wild, oh, let my soul expiring hear only these words of heavenly cheer. Sleep well, my child. Mortality. O Nicias, not for us alone was laughing Eros born, nor shines alone for us the moon, nor burns the ruddy morn. Alas! Tomorrow lies not in the ken of us who are, O Nicias, mortal men. A fickle woman. Her nature is the seas, that smiles tonight a radiant maiden in the moon's soft light. The unsuspecting seaman sets his sails, forgetful of the fury of her gales. Tomorrow, Mad with storms, the ocean roars, and o'er his hapless wreck the flood she pours. Egyptian Folk Song Grim is the face that looks into the night over the stretch of sands, a sullen rock in the sea of white, a ghostly shadow in ghostly light, peering and moaning it stands. Oh, is it the king that rides this way? Oh, is it the king that rides so free? I have looked for the king this many a day, but the years that mock me will not say why tarrieth he. Tis not your king that shall ride tonight, but a child that is fast asleep, and the horse he shall ride is the dream horse white. Aha, he shall speed through the ghostly light where the ghostly shadows creep. My eyes are dull and my face is sear, yet unto the word he gave I cling, for he was a pharaoh that set me here, and lo, 
I have waited this many a year for him, my king. Oh, past thy face my darling shall ride swift as the burning winds that bear the sand clouds over the desert wide, swift to the verdure and palms beside the wells off there. And is it the mighty king I shall see come riding into the night? Oh, is it the king come back to me, proudly and fiercely rideth he, with centuries dight? I know no king but my dark-eyed dear that shall ride the dream horse white, but see, he wakes at my bosom here while the dream-horse frettingly lingers near to speed with my babe tonight. And out of the desert darkness peers a ghostly, ghastly, shadowy thing like a spirit come out of the moldering years, and ever that waiting specter hears the coming king. Armenian folk song, The Partridge. As beats the sun from mountain crest, with, Pretty, pretty, cometh the partridge from her nest. The flowers threw kisses sweet to her, for all the flowers that bloomed knew her. Yet hasteneth she to mine and me, ah, pretty, pretty, ah, dear little partridge. And when I hear the partridge cry so pretty, pretty, upon the housetop, breakfast I, she comes a-chirping far and wide, and swinging from the mountain side, I see and hear the dainty deer, ah, pretty, pretty, ah, dear little partridge, thy nest inlaid with posies rare, and pretty, pretty bloom violet, rose, and lily there. The place is full of balmy dew, the tears of flowers in love with you, and one and all impassioned call. O oh, pretty, pretty, O oh, dear little partridge! Thy feathers they are soft and sleek, so pretty, pretty! Long is thy neck and small thy breast, the color of thy plumage far more bright than rainbow colors are. Sweeter than dove is she I love, my pretty, pretty, my dear little partridge! When comes the partridge from the tree, so pretty, pretty! and sings her little hymn to me, why, all the world is cheered thereby, the heart leaps up into the eye, and echo then gives back again our, pretty, pretty, our, dear little partridge, admitting the most blessed of all and pretty, pretty, the birds come with thee at thy call, in flocks they come and round they play, and this is what they seem to say, they say and sing, each feathered thing, ah, pretty, pretty, ah, dear little partridge, Alaskan balladry, Number one. The Northland reared his hoary head and spied the Southland leagues away. Fairest of all fair brides, he said, be thou my bride, I pray. Whereat the Southland laughed and cried, I'll bide beside my native sea, and I shall never be thy bride till thou comest wooing me. The Northland's heart was a heart of ice, a diamond glacier, mountain high. Oh, love is sweet at my price, as well know you and I. So gaily the Northland took his heart, and cast it in the wailing sea. Go thou, with all my cunning art, and woo my bride for me. For many a night, and for many a day, and over the leagues that rolled between the true heart messenger sped away to woo the Southland queen. But the sea wailed loud, and the sea wailed long while ever the Northland cried in glee. Oh, thou shalt sing us our bridal song, when comes my bride, O sea! At the foot of the Southland's golden throne the heart of the Northland ever throbs, for that true heart speaks in the waves that moan the songs that it sings are sobs. Ever the Southland spurns the cries of the messenger pleading the Northland's part. The summer shines in the Southland's eyes, the winter bides in her heart. And ever unto that far-off place which love doth render a hallow spot, the Northland turneth his honest face, and wonders she cometh not. The sea wails loud, and the sea wails long, as the ages of waiting drift slowly by, but the sea shall sing no bridal song, 
as well know you and I. Old Dutch Love Song I am not rich, and yet my wealth surpasseth human measure. My store untold is not of gold nor any sordid treasure. Let this one hoard his earthly pelf, another court ambition. Not for a throne would I disown my poor and proud condition. The worldly gain achieved today tomorrow may be flying. The gifts of kings are fleeting things, the gifts of love undying. In her I love is all my wealth, for her my soul endeavor. No heart, I ween, hath fairer queen, no liege such homage, ever. An Eclogue from Virgil The exile Melibos finds Titerus in possession of his own farm, restored to him by the Emperor Augustus, and a conversation ensues. The poem is in praise of Augustus, peace and pastoral life. Melibos, Titerus, all in the shade of the wide-spreading beech tree reclining, sweet is that music you've made on your pipe that is oaten and slender. Exiles from home, you beguile our hearts from their hopeless repining, as you sing Amaryllis the while in pastorals tuneful and tender. Titerus, a god, yes, a god, I declare, Voch safes me these pleasant conditions, and often I gaily repair with a tender white lamb to his altar, he gives me the leisure to play my greatly admired compositions, while my heifers go browsing all day, unhampered of bell and halter. Melibos, I do not begrudge you repose, I simply admit I'm confounded to find you unscathed of the woes of pillage and tumult and battle. To exile and hardship devote and by merciless enemies hounded, I drag at this wretched old goat and coax on my famishing cattle. Oh, often the omens presage the horrors which now overwhelm me. But come, if not elsewise engaged, who is this good deity? Tell me. Titerus, reminiscently, the city, the city called Rome, with my head full of herding and tillage, I used to compare with my home, these pastures wherein you now wander but I didn't take long to find out that the city surpasses the village as the cypress surpasses the sprout that thrives in the thicket out yonder. Melibos, tell me, good gossip, I pray, what led you to visit the city? Titerus, liberty, which on a day regarded my lot with compassion my age and distresses, forsooth, compelled that proud mistress to pity, that had snubbed the attentions of youth in most reprehensible fashion. Oh, happy, thrice happy, the day when the cold Galatea forsook me, and equally happy, I say, the hour when that other girl took me. Melibos, slyly, as if addressing the damsel, so now, Amaryllis, the truth of your ill-disguised grief I discover. You pine for a favorite youth with city-fied damsels hobnobbing, and soon your surroundings partook of your grief for your recusant lover, the pine trees, the copse and the brook for Titerus ever went sobbing. Titerus, Melibos, what else could I do? Fate told me no morsel of pity, my toil was all in vain the year through, no matter how earnest or clever, till, at last, came that God among men, that king from that wonderful city, and quoth, Take your homesteads again, they are yours and your assigns forever. Melibos, happy, oh, happy old man, rich in what's better than money, rich in contentment, you can gather sweet peace by mere listening, bees with soft murmurings go hither and thither for honey. Cattle all gratefully low in pastures where fountains are glistening. Hark! In the shade of that rock the pruner with singing rejoices. The dove in the elm and the flock of wood pigeons hoarsely repining. The plash of the sacred cascade. Ah, restful, indeed, are these voices. Titerus, all in the shade of your wide-spreading beech tree reclining. Titerus, and he who ensures this to me, oh, craven I were not to love him. 
nay, rather the fish of the sea shall vacate the water they swim in, the stag quit his bountiful grove to graze in the ether above him, while folk Antipodean rove along with their children and women. Melibos, suddenly recalling his own misery, but we who are exiled must go, and whither, ah, whither, God knoweth. Some into those regions of snow or of desert where death reigneth only, some off to the country of Crete, where rapid oaks's down floweth, and desperate others retreat to Britain, the bleak isle and lonely. Dear land of my birth, shall I see the horde of invaders oppress thee? Shall the wealth that outspringeth from thee by the hand of the alien be squandered? Dear cottage wherein I was born, shall another in conquest possess thee, another demolish and scorn the fields and the groves where I have wandered? My flock, never more shall you graze on that furze-covered hillside above me. Gone, gone are the halcyon days when my reed piped defiance to sorrow. Nevermore in the vine-covered grot shall I sing of the loved ones that love me. Let yesterday's peace be forgotten dread of the stormy tomorrow. Tityrus, but rest you this night with me here. My bed, we will share it together, as soon as you've tasted my cheer, my apples and chestnuts and cheeses. The evening already is nigh, the shadows creep over the heather, and the smoke is rocked up to the sky to the lullaby song of the breezes. Horace to Messinus. How breaks my heart to hear you say you feel the shadows fall about you. The gods forfend that fate, O friend. I would not, I could not live without you. You gone, what would become of me, your shadow, O beloved Messenus? We've shared the mirth, and sweets of earth. Let's share the pangs of death between us. I should not dread Chinera's breath, nor any threat of ghost infernal. Nor fear nor pain should part us twain, for so have willed the powers eternal. No false allegiance have I sworn, and whatsoever fate betide you, mine be the part to cheer your heart, with loving song to fare beside you. Love snatched you from the claws of death and gave you to the grateful city. The falling tree that threatened me did Phanus turn aside in pity, with horoscopes so wondrous like. Why question that we twain shall wander, as in this land, so, hand in hand, into the life that waiteth yonder? So to your shrine, O patron mine, with precious wine and victims fare you, poor as I am, a humble lamb must testify what love I bear you. But to the skies shall sweetly rise the sacrifice from shrine and heather, and thither bear the solemn prayer that, when we go, we go together. Horaces. Sailor and Shade. Sailor. You, who have compassed land and see now all unbared lie, all vain your store of human lore, for you were doomed to die. The sire of Pelops likewise fell, Jove's honored mortal guest, so king and sage of every age at last lie down to rest. Plutonian shades enfold the ghost of that majestic one who taught us truth that he, forsooth, had once been Pentheus' son. Believe who may, he's passed away and what he did is done. A last night comes alike to all, one path we all must tread, through sore disease or stormy seas or fields with corpses red, whatever our deeds that pathway leads to regions of the dead. Shade. The fickle twin Illyrian gales overwhelmed me on the wave. But that you live, I pray you give my bleaching bones a grave. Oh, then when cruel tempests rage you all unharmed shall be, Jove's mighty hand shall guard by land and Neptune's on the sea. Perchance you fear to do what shall bring evil to your race. Or rather fear that like me here you'll lack a burial place. So, though you be in proper haste, bide long enough I pray, to give me, friend, 
what boon will send my soul upon its way? Ulance. Chapel. Yonder stands the hillside chapel, mid the evergreens and rocks. All day long it hears the song of the shepherd to his flocks. Then the chapel bell goes tolling, knolling for a soul that's sped. Silent and sad the shepherd lad hears the requiem for the dead. Shepherd, singers of the valley, voiceless now, speed on before. Soon shall knell that chapel bell for the songs you'll sing no more. The Happy Isles of Horus Oh, come with me to the happy isles in the golden haze off yonder, where the song of the sun-kissed breeze beguiles and the ocean loves to wander. Fragrant divines that mantle those hills, proudly the fig rejoices, merrily dance the virgin rills, blending their myriad voices. Our herds shall suffer no evil there, but peacefully feed and rest them. Never thereto shall prowling bear or serpent come to molest them. Neither shall Eurus, wanton bold, nor feverish drought distress us, but he that compasseth heat and cold shall temper them both to bless us. There no vandal foot has trod, and the pirate hordes that wander shall never profane the sacred sod of these beautiful isles out yonder. Never a spell shall blight our vines nor serious blaze above us. But you and I shall drink our wines and sing to the love that love us. So come with me where fortune smiles and the gods invite devotion. Oh, come with me to the happy isles in the haze of that far-off ocean. Horatian Lyrics I, Odes I, Eleven What end the gods may have ordained for me, and what for thee, seek not to learn, Lacono, we may not know, Chaldean tables cannot bring us rest, tis for the best to bear in patience what may come, or weal or woe. If for more winters our poor lot is cast, or this the last, which on the crumbling rocks has dashed Etruscan seas, strain clear the wine, this life is short, at best, Take hope with zest, and trusting not tomorrow, snatch today for ease. 2. Odes I, 23. Why do you shun me, Chloe, like the fawn, that, fearful of the breezes in the wood, has sought her timorous mother since the dawn and on the pathless mountain tops has stood? Her trembling heart a thousand fears invites, her sinking knees with nameless terrors shake, whether the rustling leaf of spring affrights, or the green lizards stir the slumbering brake. I do not follow with a tigerish thought or with the fierce Catullian lion's quest. So, quickly leave your mother, as you ought, full ripe to nestle on a husband's breast. Horace 2, 13 O fountain of Blandusia, whence crystal waters flow, with garlands gay and wine I'll pay the sacrifice I owe. A sportive kid with budding horns I have, whose crimson blood anon shall die and sanctify thy cool and babbling flood. O fountain of Blandusia, the dog star's hateful spell no evil brings unto the springs that from thy bosom well. Here oxen, wearied by the plow, the roving cattle here, hasten in quest of certain rest and quaff thy gracious cheer. O fountain of Blandusia, ennobled shalt thou be, for I shall sing the joys that spring beneath your ilex tree. Yes, fountain of Blandusia, posterity shall know the cooling brooks that from thy nooks singing and dancing go. Horace 4 2. Come, Phyllis, I've a cask of wine that fairly reeks with precious juices. And in your tresses you shall twine the loveliest flowers this vale produces. My cottage wears a gracious smile. The altar decked in floral glory yearns for the lamb which bleats the while as though it pined for honor's gory. Hither our neighbors nimbly fare, the boys agog, the maidens snickering, and savory smells possess the air as skyward kitchen flames are flickering. You ask what means this grand display? this festive throng and goodly diet?
Well, since you're bound to have your way, I don't mind telling on the quiet. Tis April 13th, as you know, a day and month devote to Venus, whereon was born some years ago, my very worthy friend, Messinas. Nay, pay no heed to Telephus. Your friends agree he doesn't love you. The way he flirts convinces us he really is not worthy of you. Aurora's son, unhappy lad. You know the fate that overtook him? And Pegasus a rider had. I say he had before he shook him. Hate Doset, as you may agree tis meet that Phyllis should discover a wisdom in preferring me and middening every other lover. So come, O Phyllis, last and best of loves with which this heart's been smitten. Come, sing my jealous fears to rest, and let your songs be those I've written. Hugo's. Pool in the forest. How calm, how beauteous, and how cool, how like a sister to the skies, appears the broad, transparent pool that in this quiet forest lies. The sunshine ripples on its face, and from the world around, above, it hath caught down the nameless grace of such reflections as we love. But deep below its surface crawl the reptile horrors of the night, the dragons, lizards, serpents, all the hideous brood that hate the light, through poison fern and slimy weed, and under ragged, jagged stones they scuttle, or, in ghoulish greed, they lap a dead man's bones. And as, O pool, thou dost cajole with seemings that beguile us well, so doeth many a human soul that teemeth with the lusts of hell. Horace I for. Tis spring. The boats bound to the sea. The breezes, loitering kindly over the fields, again bring herds and men the grateful cheer of honey clover. Now Venus hither leads her train. The nymphs and graces join in orgies. The moon is bright and by her light old Vulcan kindles up his forges. Bind myrtle now about your brow, and weave fair flowers and maiden tresses. Appease God Pan who, kind to man, our fleeting life with affluence blesses. But let the changing seasons mind us that death's the certain doom of mortals, grim death who waits at humble gat and likewise stalks through kingly portals. Soon, Cestius, shall Plutonian shades enfold you with their hideous seemings. Then love and mirth and joys of earth shall fade away like fevered dreamings. Love song, Heine. Many a beauteous flower doth spring from the tears that flood my eyes and the nightingale doth sing in the burthen of my sighs. If, O child, thou lovest me, take these flowerets, fair and frail, and my soul shall waft to thee love songs of the nightingale. Horace 2, 3. Be tranquil, Delius, I pray, for though you pine your life away with dull complaining breath, or speed with song and wine each day, still, still your doom is death. Where the white poplar and the pine in glorious arching shade combine and the brook singing goes, bid them bring store of nard and wine and garlands of the rose. Let's live while chance and youth obtain. Soon shall you quit this fair domain kissed by the Tiber's gold, and all your earthly pride and gain some heedless air shall hold. One ghostly boat shall sometime bear from scenes of mirthfulness, or care each fated human soul, shall waft and leave his burden where the waves of Lethe roll. So come, I pri thee, Delius, mine, let's sing our songs and drink our wine in that sequestered nook where the white poplar and the pines stand listening to the brook. The two coffins. In yonder old cathedral two lonely coffins lie, in one the head of the state lies dead, and a singer sleeps hard by. Once had that king great power, and proudly he ruled the land, his crown e'en now is on his brow and his sword is in his hand. How sweetly sleeps the singer with calmly folded eyes, 
and on the breast of the bard at rest the harp that he sounded lies. The castle walls are falling and war distracts the land, but the sword leaps not from that mildewed spot, there in that dead king's hand. But with every grace of nature there seems to float along, to cheer the hearts of men, the singer's deathless song. Horace I. 31. As forth he pours the new-made wine, what blessing asks the lyric poet, what boon implores in this fair shrine of one full likely to bestow it. Not for Sardinia's plenteous store, nor for Calabrian herds he prayeth, nor yet for India's wealth galore, nor meads where voiceless lyries playeth. Let honest riches celebrate the harvest earned, I not deny it, yet am I pleased with my estate, my humble home, my frugal diet. Child of Latonia, this I crave, may peace of mind and health attend me, and down into my very grave may this dear lyre of mine befriend me. Horace to his lute. If ever in the sylvan shade a song immortal we have made, come now, O lute, I pri thee come, inspire a song of Latium. A lesbian first thy glories proved, in arms and in repose he loved to sweep thy dulcet strings and raise his voice in loves and libera's praise. The muses, too, and him who clings to Mother Venus' apron strings, and like is beautiful, he sung in those old days when you were young. O shell, that art the ornament of Phoebus, bringing sweet content to Jove, and soothing troubles all, come and requite me, when I call. Horace I, 22. Fuscus, whoso to good inclines, and is a faultless liver, nor moorish spear nor bow-kneed fear, nor poison-arrowed quiver. I, though through desert wastes he roams, or scales the rugged mountains, or rests beside the murmuring tide of weird Hydaspan fountains. Lo, on a time, I gaily paced the Sabine confines shady, and sung in glee of Lelage, my own and dearest lady. And, as I sung, a monster wolf slunk through the thicket from me, but for that song, as I strolled along he would have overcome me. Set me amid those poison mists which no fair gale dispelleth, or in the plains where silence reigns and no thing human dwelleth. Still shall I love my Lalage, still sing her tender graces, and while I sing my theme shall bring heaven to those desert places. The Ars Poetica of Horace 23 I love the lyric muse. For when mankind ran wild in groves, came holy Orpheus with his songs and turned men's hearts from bestial loves, from brutal force and savage wrongs, came Amphion, too, and on his lyre made such sweet music all the day that rocks, instinct with warm desire, pursued him in his glorious way. I love the lyric muse. Hers was the wisdom that of your taught man the rights of fellow man, taught him to worship God the more and to revere love's holy ban. Hers was the hand that jotted down the laws correcting divers' wrongs, and so came honor and renown to bards and to their noble songs. I love the lyric muse. Old Homer sung unto the lyre, Tertius, too, in ancient days still, warmed by their immortal fire, how doth our patriot spirit blaze. The oracle, when questioned, sings, so we our way in life are taught, in verse we soothe the pride of kings, in verse the drama has been wrought. I love the lyric muse. Be not ashamed, O noble friend, in honest gratitude to pay thy homage to the gods that send this boon to charm all ill away. With solemn tenderness revere this voiceful glory as a shrine wherein the quickened heart may hear the counsels of a voice divine. Martha's Yunket. The mountain brook sung lonesome-like and loitered on its way easy if it waited for a child to join it in its play, 
the wild flowers of the hillside bent down their heads to hear the music of the little feet that had, somehow, grown so dear. The magpies, like winged shadows, was a fluttering to and fro among the rocks and holler stumps in the ragged gulch below. The pines and the hemlock tossed their boughs, like they was arms, and he made soft. Solemn music on the slope where he had often played. But for these lonesome, solemn voices on the mountainside, there was no sound the summer day that Marthys Yunkett died. We called him Marthys Yunkett, for Marthy was the name Uv her easy was his mar, the wife Uv sorry Tom. The same easy taught the schoolhouse on the hill way back in sixty nine when she married sorry Tom, which owned the Goshal Hemlock mine, and Marthys Yunkett was their first, which, being how it meant the first on Red Hoss Mountain, was truly a event. The miners sawed off short on work, yes, soon easy they got word that Doc Devine allowed to Casey what had just occurred. We loaded and de-hooped around until we all was hoarse, saluting the arrival, which weighed ten pounds, UV course. Three years, and sec a pretty child. His mother's counterpart, three years, and sec a holt easy he had got on every heart. A pert and likely little tyke with hair easy red easy gold, a Logan, toddling everywhere and only three years old. Up yonder, sometimes, to the store, and sometimes down the hill he kied boys as boys, you know, you couldn't keep him still, and there he'd played beside the brook where purple wild flowers grew and the mountain pines and he hemlocks a kindly shadow through and sung soft, solemn tunes to him, while in the gulch below the magpies, like strange spirits, went fluttering to and fro. Three years, and then the fever come, it wasn't right, you know, with all us old ones in the camp, for that little child to go. It's right the old should die, but that a harmless little child should miss the joy UV life and e love, that can't be reconciled. That's what we thought that summer day, and that is what we said easy we looked upon the piteous face UV Marthy's Yunkett dead. But for his mother sob in the house was very still, and sorry Tom was looking through the winder down the hill to the patch beneath the hemlocks where his darling used to play and the mountain brook sung lonesome-like and loitered on its way. A preacher come from Roaring Forks to comfort M. and E. Prey, and all the camp was present at the obsequies next day. A female teacher staged it twenty miles to sing a hymn, and we jeaned her in the chorus. Big, husky men and E. Grimm sung. Jesus, lover you be my soul. And then the preacher prayed and preached a sermon on the death you be that fair blossom laid among them other floor as he loved which sermon set sec weight on sinners being always healed against the future state that, though it had been fashionable to swear a perfect streak, there weren't no swearin' in the camp for pretty nigh a week. Last thing UV all, six strappin' men took up the little load and bore it tenderly along the wind in rocky road to where the coroner had dug a grave beside the brook, in sight UV Marthy's winder, where the sane could set and look and wonder if his cradle in that green patch long endy wide was easy soothin' easy the cradle that was empty at her side. And wonder of the mournful songs the pines was singin' then was easy tender easy the lullaby she'd never sing again, and if the bosom uv the earth in which he lay at rest was half easy lovin' endy easy warm easy was his mother's breast. The camp is gone, but Red Hoss Mountain rears its kindly head and looks down sort uv tenderly upon its cherished dead, and I reckon that, through all the years that little boy which died sleeps sweetly and decontentedly upon the mountainside, that the wild flowers of the summertime bend down their heads to hear the footfall uv a little friend they know not slumbers near, that the magpies on the solemn rocks strange fluttering shadows make.
and the pines and hemlocks wonder that the sleeper doesn't wake, that the mountain brook sings lonesome-like and loiters on its way easy if it waited afar a child to join it in its play. Abu Midjan When Father Time swings round his scythe, entombed beneath the bounteous vine, so that its juices, red and blithe, may cheer these thirsty bones of mine. Elsewise with tears and bated breath should I survey the life to be. But oh, how should I hail the death that brings that vinous grace to me? So sung the dauntless Saracen, whereat the prophet chief ordains that, cursed of Allah, loathed of men, the faithless one shall die in chains. But one vile Christian slave that lay a prisoner near that prisoner saith, God willing, I will plant some day a vine where thou least in death. Lo, over Abu Midjan's grave with purpling fruit a vine tree grows, where rots the martyred Christian slave Allah, and only Allah, knows. The dying year. The year has been a tedious one, a weary round of toil and sorrow, and since it now at last is gone, we say farewell and hail the morrow. Yet o'er the wreck which time has wrought a sweet, consoling ray is shimmered, the one but compensating thought that literary life has glimmered. Struggling with hunger and with cold the world contemptuously beheld her. The little thing was one year old. But who'd have cared had she been elder? Dead roses. He placed a rose in my nut-brown hair, a deep red rose with a fragrant heart, and said, We'll set this day apart, so sunny, so wondrous fair. His face was full of a happy light. His voice was tender and low and sweet. The daisies and the violets grew at our feet. Alas, for the coming of night. The rose is black and withered and dead. Tis hid in a tiny box away. The nut-brown hair is turning to gray, and the light of the day is fled. The light of the beautiful day is fled. Hushed is the voice so sweet and low. And I, ah me, I loved him so, and the daisies grow over his head. 